0: Welcome back to Bite Size Crime. This week, I'm bringing you a missing persons case from Florida, a story of a mother-to-be and a family that has waited so long for answers. This episode discusses sensitive topics, so listener discretion is advised. Allie Aisha Grimsley grew up in the city of Riviera Beach on the east coast of Florida, about an hour north of Miami. Her mother, Lorvetta, was in a tough spot at the time of Allie's birth in 1976, so she sent baby Allie to live with family members until she could get on her feet. At the age of 11, Allie reunited with Lorvetta, and they moved into a small one-story house in Palm Beach County. Lorvetta worked multiple jobs to provide for Allie and her siblings. In an interview with the Tallahassee Democrat, Lorvetta said, quote, I wanted the best for my children. I wanted them all to go to school. Allie appreciated her mother's commitment to her education, and she understood how important it was. As a teenager, Allie would get up at 5 a.m. to wait at the bus stop, where she would then ride 45 minutes to Jupiter High School, a nationally ranked magnet school in Palm Beach County. Her stepfather, Carl, told the Tallahassee Democrat that there had been some issues with gang members assaulting girls in the neighborhood, but when he offered to walk Allie to the bus stop each day, quote, She said no one is going to stop her from going to school. She was going to walk on her own. At school, Allie worked hard to get good grades, and she was a prominent member of the school's track team. After school, she worked part-time at a local Publix grocery store, a job she really enjoyed. That job enabled her to get a scholarship to Florida A&M University in Tallahassee, and in 1993, 17-year-old Allie headed off to college to start the next chapter of her life. Allie excelled at FAMU, where she majored in health information management. She also enjoyed the city of Tallahassee, which had a low crime rate and a slower pace than Palm Beach County. After graduation, Allie decided to stay, and she began working for the Florida Department of Health in the Office of Evaluation and Planning Data Analysis. Of course, she also kept her job at Publix, working in the bakery on the weekends. Allie was thriving as a newly launched professional, and her family was so proud of her. About a year later, Allie met James Gilmore. She was at the Governor's Square Mall looking for a frame for her college diploma, and James was selling frames at a mall kiosk. They struck up a conversation, and eventually, James asked for Allie's number. He later said, She just seemed real fun to be around. We just hit it off. After that, James and Allie were inseparable. A divorced father of three, James loved how Allie brought out the best in him. She encouraged him to go back to school and get his degree at Tallahassee Community College. James said, quote, she's been there supporting me the whole way. Eight months into their relationship, James brought Allie back to the spot where they met at Governor's Square Mall and asked her to marry him. She said yes, and the couple married in October of 2000. At first, things were good. James and Allie bought a little blue house in the Wilson Green subdivision, and Allie set about decorating and planting flowers. They talked about having kids and planning for the future. In the summer of 2005, Allie found out she was pregnant and she was so excited, but sadly she miscarried shortly after. This was devastating to both Allie and James, and the emotional impact put a strain on their relationship. They struggled to communicate, and they began to withdraw from each other. Adding to this stress was their financial situation. Allie was working full-time for the Department of Health and working evenings and weekends at Publix. James was going to school part-time and working as a stockman at Albertson's supermarket. They were barely making ends meet, and they hardly saw each other due to their busy schedules. Things came to a boiling point in October of 2005, and the couple decided they needed space. James moved out and went to stay with his brother, but he and Allie kept in contact during their time apart. Not long after their separation, Allie discovered that she was pregnant again, and she was over the moon— She and James decided to start going to counseling together, hoping that they could eventually reconcile. By the time 2006 rolled around, Allie was once again feeling hopeful. She had just turned 30, her pregnancy was healthy so far, and she was planning a baby shower with her friends. She and James were still living apart, but things were looking up. Counseling had been going well, and they were both excited about the baby, decorating the nursery and picking out potential baby names. They had an appointment coming up in mid-February to find out if the baby was a girl or a boy. Of course, life wasn't without its stressors. In late January, Allie got the news that her property taxes were increasing significantly, and she was worried about being able to pay the bill. Even with James's help, it was going to put a big strain on their finances. On Thursday, February 2nd, the issue was still heavy on her mind. She went into work at the Department of Health as usual— driving through a torrential downpour to get there. Her co-workers noted that she was anxious that day, and she even spoke with her supervisor about her taxes, hoping for some advice. After work, Allie left for her evening shift at Publix, once again driving through a thunderstorm and fighting against traffic, none of which helped her anxiety. Later that evening, around 8.45, Allie called James while she was on her break to remind him about their counseling session at 9 the next morning. James said he would meet her there. But neither of them showed up for the appointment. Around 11 a.m. on Friday, James woke up and realized that he had overslept and missed the counseling session. Figuring that Allie had already gone to work by that time, James called her office and left a message, apologizing for missing the appointment. But Allie wasn't at work. Her co workers knew she'd had an appointment that morning, so they assumed that she would be in later, and her supervisor was out sick that day, so she didn't know that Allie wasn't there. Everyone just assumed that Allie was somewhere else. But by Saturday, James was getting worried. Allie hadn't responded to his messages, which wasn't like her, even if she was upset. He drove over to the house and saw that her car was in the driveway, but when he knocked on the door, she didn't answer. James figured that she must be really angry with him and didn't want to talk. Wanting to respect her space, James left. Unfortunately, it would be another two days before anyone realized that Allie wasn't just mad, she was missing. When she didn't show up for work on Monday and her supervisor realized she hadn't been there Friday either, she tried calling Allie's home phone over and over again to no avail. She finally drove over to Allie's house with another co-worker, and the two banged on the doors and windows, hoping to get a response. They noticed that one of the bedroom lights was on, as well as the floodlight in the front of the house. If Allie was home and hurt, she may not have been able to get to the door. Her coworkers decided to call the police. When officers from the Tallahassee Police Department arrived, they agreed with Allie's co-workers. It was likely that Allie was inside and in need of assistance. They were able to get into the house, but once they did, they quickly realized that Allie was not there. The house was quiet and seemingly undisturbed. In Allie's bedroom, the light was on and the bedsheets were pulled back a book on prenatal care next to the pillow. On the end of the bed, Allie's Publix uniform was laid out, indicating that she had made it home after her shift on Thursday night. Officers observed that there were no obvious signs of a struggle. It appeared as though Allie had been lying in bed reading, then had gotten up for some reason. When officers searched Allie's vehicle, they found that her purse was inside the car with her work keys, but her house keys and car keys were missing. Apparently, leaving her purse in the car wasn't unusual for Allie. Her friends said she often did this, but always locked the car behind her. Investigators were left wondering, why would Allie leave the house so late at night after already getting settled into bed? And where would she go without a car? The next day, a forensic unit searched the house, attempting to find evidence that may have been missed on the first search. They took Allie's computer back to the lab for analysis, just in case there were any clues in her emails or personal files. Detectives also began canvassing the neighborhood, knocking on doors and asking for any information about Allie. They interviewed Allie's friends, coworkers, and family members. All of them said the same thing Allie wasn't the type to just walk away without telling anyone. The search for Allie spread across town, starting in her small subdivision and extending into nearby construction sites and wooded areas. Lieutenant Edward Smith, head of the Criminal Investigations Unit, told reporters that although they couldn't say whether foul play was involved in Allie's disappearance, quote, we're ruling it as suspicious. Naturally, some of that suspicion fell on Allie's estranged husband, James. He was questioned by police multiple times, but they always stated that he was cooperative and willing to help with the investigation. He voluntarily submitted to a polygraph and passed. James spoke with the Tallahassee Democrat early on, saying, quote, I want everybody to know and understand how much I love and miss Allie. Anybody who's known me for all of a couple of weeks would know that I am not the kind of person that would render harm to any living soul whatsoever. On February 10th, a week after Allie disappeared, nearly 200 people gathered for a candlelight vigil, sharing encouraging messages with Allie's family and praying for her safe return. But the weeks continued to pass, and there was no sign of Allie. Even investigators were getting frustrated with the lack of movement in the case. Officer David McCraney told reporters, quote, the way we do an investigation like this is we exhaust every avenue possible and interview every person we can find. We've got nothing. We're waiting for that next bit of information. Allie's friends and coworkers organized search parties and handed out flyers around Tallahassee, hoping to get the word out. At the end of February, the Tallahassee Police Department announced that they were offering a $10,000 reward for any information leading to Ali's whereabouts. Public supermarkets matched that donation, and Crime Stoppers added another $1,000 to the fund. But even with the large reward, very few leads came in, and none of them panned out. Investigators decided to take Allie's story to the media. Her case was featured on national shows like Nancy Grace and Anderson Cooper, with members of the Tallahassee Police Department answering questions about the case and asking the public for help. They hoped that the story of a pregnant woman disappearing without a trace would capture the public's attention and bring in new leads. In March, a local advertising agency donated a large billboard on a main road just a mile outside of Allie's neighborhood. Allie's smile shone down on passersby, the tip-line phone number prominently displayed. By this time, the reward had grown to $30,000, and everyone was hoping for new information. The search for Allie continued. In April, the Class Kids Foundation partnered with a local canine search and rescue group to canvas the Apalachicola National Forest, which spans over 600,000 acres in the Florida Panhandle. Hundreds of volunteers joined the search, and news outlets reported that teams handed over 15 possible clues to authorities at the end of the first day. But if anything ever came of those clues, investigators have never said. Unfortunately, none of these searches brought Allie home, and as time passed, there was less attention on her case. In February of 2007, a year after Allie disappeared, investigators revealed some new information. On the night of her disappearance, Allie had gotten a phone call at 12.47 a.m., but authorities wouldn't say who had called. They also said that they had recently gotten lab results back on certain pieces of evidence, and they were sharing that information with the state attorney's office. In yet another bombshell, investigators announced that although they originally had four suspects in the case, they were now narrowing their focus. For many who were following Allie's case, this was brand new information. Who were the four suspects, and what did it mean that the investigation had narrowed? Did the police know what happened to Allie and who had been involved? It was obvious that Allie's husband James was one of the four suspects, but he maintained his innocence and police continued to assert that James had been cooperative from the beginning. If they thought he had anything to do with Allie's disappearance, they didn't have enough evidence to prove it and they never filed any charges against him. In July of 2007, Allie's case was assigned to the Tallahassee Police Department's Major Case Assessment Team, the unit that handles cold cases. Investigators said that all their leads had been exhausted, and it was time for the case to be looked at with new eyes. A rotating team of detectives would look at Ali's case on a regular basis, searching for new clues and answering old questions. It would be another 14 years before any of those answers came to light. On October 11, 2021, the Tallahassee Police Department announced that they had a suspect in the disappearance of Allie Gilmore, 40-year-old Dwight Aldridge. They also revealed that he was the one who called Allie the night she disappeared. Allie met Dwight in October of 2005, not long after she and James had separated. According to Allie's family, she had gone to homecoming at FAMU and had run into Dwight, who was tall and handsome and swept her off her feet. Allie's sister Tracy believes that Allie fell for Dwight right away, and there were even questions about her baby's paternity. In December of 2005, Allie sent Tracy an email, part of which read, quote, "'Dwight and I still talk about two or three times a day. We still see each other three times a week. He said I changed since I'm pregnant. My past miscarriage haunts me every few days.' then on top of all that, the paternity issues. Apparently, Dwight even went to several ultrasound appointments with Allie, which she noted in her day planner. According to James, Allie told him about her relationship with Dwight during one of their counseling sessions, but they were both still determined to make their marriage work. He told WCTV, quote, we were going to work it out either way. In my brain, that's where I was. I did not not want to be with her. Allie's family confirmed this. Allie told them repeatedly that she loved James and wanted to work things out with him. In the early morning hours of February 3, 2006, Dwight called Allie at home. Sometime after that, she vanished. Authorities say they asked Dwight about this call early on in the investigation, but he claimed that he was nowhere near her house. However, cell phone records showed that Dwight's phone pinged off a tower right near Allie's neighborhood at the time of the call in question. This wasn't the only lie Dwight told about Allie. In 2009, he made a brief statement to the Tallahassee Democrat, claiming that he and Allie were just friends and that he didn't remember anything about the last time he spoke with her, saying, It's been so long. In addition to these statements, Dwight's past may prove troublesome for him if he is ever charged in this case. In 1998, the day after his 17th birthday, Dwight was arrested for armed robbery and sentenced to five years in prison. He was released in 2003, just two years before he met Allie. It's unclear if she knew about his time in prison. He may never have mentioned it to her, especially since they were only together for a few months. Obviously, none of this is enough to prove Dwight's guilt, and I do believe in innocent until proven guilty, but investigators waited 15 years to announce that Dwight Aldridge is their main suspect, which leads me to believe that they have much more information than they're releasing at this time. In the years since Allie's disappearance, Dwight graduated from nursing school and has been working in health administration in Tallahassee. He has not spoken publicly about Allie since that one interview in 2009. It appears that he has moved on with his life. He has not been officially charged in connection with Allie's disappearance. James Gilmore is also still living in Tallahassee. According to public posts on his Facebook account, James welcomed his first grandchild in 2019 and he will occasionally post pictures of himself and Allie. He spoke with WCTV in 2021, saying, quote, The thing that I think about more is what could have been, what could have been and us getting back together and raising our, hopefully it was a daughter. Allie Gilmore is still missing, and her family deserves answers. At the time of her disappearance, Allie was 30 years old and four months pregnant. She is 5 feet 6 inches tall with brown hair and brown eyes and a tattoo of her first name on the right side of her chest. She may have been wearing a platinum and diamond wedding ring when she left her home in Tallahassee's Wilson Green neighborhood on February 3, 2006. If you have any information about Allie's disappearance or about Dwight Aldridge, please contact the Tallahassee Police Department at 850-891-4200 or submit an anonymous tip to Crime Stoppers at 850-574-TIPS. Thank you for listening to Bite-Sized Crime. This episode was written, researched, and edited by me, Joyce Scaglione. Theme music is by Arts Guitars. For episode transcripts, pictures, and sources, please visit bitesizedcrimepod.com. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at Bite-Sized Crime Pod. If you have a suggestion for a case I should cover, please email me at Bite-Sized Crime Pod at gmail.com. And be sure to subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Boundless Audio Podcast Network.